So welcome everybody to this year's Memo um, Memorial Malinowski Lecture 2016 and a warm welcome to um, Dr. Sean Lazar. Sean is a senior lecturer in the anthropology at Cambridge. Her work, which focuses on citizenship, the ethnography of the state and radical social movements in Latin America, is making an exciting and original contribution to political and urban anthropology. Her first ethnographic project focused on the everyday practices of citizenship and political mobilization in La Alto, a city in Bolivia. This has become an important hub for resistance against neoliberal reforms and resource extraction and, and was instrumental in the election of the country's first indigenous president, Morales, in 2005. Her book, El Alto, Rebel City, Self and Citizenship in Andean Bolivia, was published by Duke, Duke in 2008 to wide acclaim. Sean's more recent work involves ethnographic research amongst trade unions in Buenos Aires, focusing upon the relationship between individuals, the unions and the state, and examining the relationship between political subjectivity and agency. Sean has also published a reader on the anthropology of citizenship and a special issue in the critique of anthropology on citizenship, the self and political agency. And she's also, I think, probably the person with the most interestingly coloured hair that has ever stood on this stage. So... Welcome, Sean. Today, her lecture is titled Politics Beyond Interest, Ethics, Kinship, and the Collective Self in Argentine Labor Unions. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Okay. Thanks very much. I'm very honored to be giving this lecture. Uh, honored uh, and slightly panicked, but there we go. When I was first asked, my response was to read as much of Malinowski as I could. And I confess that I do mean read rather than reread in many cases. Still, it was genuinely invigorating and not a little intimidating to be pushed in this way to consider quite the extent of his analytical range, from fieldwork itself to exchange to magic to kinship to agriculture to law to sex, to freedom, to colonialism, to applied and even collaborative anthropology, the list goes on. What I think I liked most, though, was to find, amidst the often arrogant bombast, periodic acknowledgments of doubt or of missing details, such as those moments in his work in Mexico when he notes the need for further data, and of course his personal diary of the Trobrian fieldwork. It's in those moments that I think I could really relate to him, especially when he frets about reading too many novels in the field, the attached guilt being as important as the crime itself. I was delighted to find out that we'd both read the same book on our first major piece of field research, namely The Count of Monte Cristo by Dumas, which I can heartily recommend as a fieldwork novel. It's long, meaty. You'll know, anyway, of course. Of course, I've written this lecture inspired by Malinowski, as I shall go on to outline but I would also like to take the liberty of dedicating it to my doctoral supervisor, Olivia Harris, who gave this lecture in 1987. I do so because she was an inspiration to me, and also because she would have been amused, I think, to find out that I have decided to tackle kinship, an area in which she was a highly insightful and sophisticated thinker, but which I avoided like the plague throughout my period of training with her. Still, time passes and realisation dawns. Kinship takes centre stage in this lecture, and my first subsection is entitled Bringing Kinship Back into Politics. Now, in Chapter 2 of Argonauts of the Western Pacific, Malinowski argues that agricultural work in the Trobians is not merely motivated by economic self-interest. 
That's to say that tribunals do not work on the principle of the least effort needed in order to meet their immediate wants. It is, he tells us, much more complicated than that. For they labour, at least in part, in order to create a surplus that then goes to their kin, the mother's brother. Malinowski suggested that labour comes about through a, quote, very complex set of traditional forces, duties and obligations, beliefs in magic, social ambitions and vanities. I quote this to make a more general point, which is that both Argonauts and Coral Gardens and their, and their magic, their magnum opus, as it were, could be interpreted at least in part as a critique of the 19th century notion of economic man, a philosophy of universal economic uh, motivation that is, I would argue, still dominant today, albeit not in anthropology. Economic man is the person who operates only or primarily on the basis of formal economic logics of calculative self-interest. And Malinowski takes direct aim at the concept of primitive economic man in Argonauts, calling him a, quote, fanciful dummy creature. Of course, both books are very much more than just a critique of the universal validity of this concept. Nonetheless, the critique strikes me as quite fundamental to his work. It must, I imagine, have been an important topic of debate in the LSE when Malinowski first arrived in 1910. And as he mixed with figures such as the socialist political theorist Harold Lasky, who arrived in 1920, he's at the top. Malinowski's student, Raymond Firth, couldn't find an early picture of him but he trained in neoclassical economics. And then Lionel Robbins, who became professor of economics here in 1929, and who is one of the thinkers most associated with the concept of economic man. I kind of imagine, I like to imagine quite sort of fiery debates in in academic committees. You know, unless they didn't have to do quite so many committees. (laughs) But I think it must have been quite fun (laughs) to have those figures there. Now, given Malinowski's remarkable questioning of what was gradually becoming powerful economic orthodoxy, I find it surprising that he did not, it seems, turn quite the same level of scrutiny towards what we might call political man, the political person motivated by interest. Indeed, politics is actually rather submerged in his ethnographic writings, perhaps because he did not really develop a theory of power until later on in his life when he did so, in Freedom and Civilization, published posthumously in 1947, he seemed to advocate submission to rules of government as attributable mostly to self-interest, even though he argued in favor of democratic participation in the discussion of what would be the agreed ends of that government. So you're supposed to discuss what the agreed ends are, but then you're kind of submitting to the rules of government uh, because it's in your interest to do so. And self-interest loomed large also in earlier works. For example, in Crime and Custom from 1926, Malinowski tells us that, on the whole, the Melanesian tries to fulfill his obligations, for he is impelled to do so partly through enlightened self-interest, partly in obedience to his social ambitions and sentiments. And he described civil law as the positive law governing all the phases of tribal life, which consists then of a body of standing obligations. These rules of civil law offer not only penalties for failure, but also premiums for an overdose of fulfilment. Their stringency is ensured through the rational appreciation of cause and effect by the natives, combined with a number of social and personal sentiments, such as ambition, vanity, pride, desire of self-enhancement by display, and also attachment, friendship, devotion, and loyalty to the kin.' 
Incidentally, I do think it's quite notable that Malinowski connects self-interest to obligations here rather than to rights, which might be what we'd expect from a more contemporary author, let's say. But I want to set that aside uh, just for now. His emphasis on enlightened self-interest strikes me as really very important because moving beyond merely motivations for submitting to rules of government, which is what I think he's talking about there and in Freedom and Civilization a little bit, and widening my scope to politics more generally, I think it is fair to say that interest-based understandings of politics have become fundamental to both academic political theory and popular theories of politics, linked in particular to the rise of capitalism and related assumptions about motivation. And I'm thinking here of Albert Hirschman's work as one of the key uh, works in in that trend. In my own research, I see the importance of the politics of interest in the political science of corporatism and clientelism, for example. But I think we see it also in academic and popular discussions of voting behavior, in our sense, for example, that political parties represent or should represent different interest groups, in discussions about taxation and so on. You know, if you're paying the taxes, it's in your interest to pay the tax because you get the services that are paid for through the tax. Yet since Malinowski, it's long been acknowledged, certainly among anthropologists, that the instrumental aspects of politics are actually only a fairly limited part of any story, and that interest-based understandings only get you so far. It is the social and personal sentiments that have proven most attractive to anthropologists, at least. Hence the turns within political anthropology to affect, subjectivity, and so on. I locate myself in this tradition but my move in this lecture will be to turn back to an earlier concern of political anthropology, namely kinship. I'm, of course, not alone in this impulse. Indeed, kinship's been brought back into politics in a number of ways, such as through the analysis of the role of cultural languages of kinship for understandings of politics, in particular, for example, for nationalism or for divine kingship and so on, or in how, uh, discussions of how colonial governments operated through the regulation of intimacy. However, my focus will be slightly different. I want to look at the day-to-day implications of kinship and politics in a given political space and the implications of that for the construction of political subjects. This project is inspired by some of the recent work on blurrings between the realms of economics and kinship in modern life in the Vital Relations collection edited by Cannell and McKinnon, also in Alpa Shah's description of the implications of kinship relations with the practices of the Maoist revolutionary movement in Jharkhand, India. Now, Malinowski, of course, had a lot to say about kinship. In an influential article published in Man in 1930, he distinguished very clearly between kinship within the family as, quote, a matter of flesh and blood, the result of sexual passion and maternal affection, of long intimate daily life, and of a host of personal intimate interests. And the extension, so that's on one side, and the extension of that kinship outwards to the clan, the local group, and the tribe. And he said, bonds of clanship develop much later in life. And though they develop out of the primary kinship of the family, this development functions in an entirely different sphere of interests, legal, economic, above all ceremonial. Once the functional distinction is made between the two modes of grouping, the family and the clan, 
Most of the spurious problems and fictitious explanations dissolve into the speculative mist out of which they were born. Memorably, he opened that particular article by referring to this speculative mist as a bastard algebra of kinship. And indeed, he's especially polemical in his attack on previous anthropological approaches to the topic, particularly in the context of debates at the time about classificatory kinship systems and the extension of kinship, or if I'm understanding it correctly, kinship terms, from the parent-child unit outwards. I'm kind of with him on the, the bastard algebra question. Thus, when speaking of the relation between kinship and politics, Malinowski suggested that, quotes, the real subject matter of the, of the study of kinship should be, quotes, the processes of the extension of kinship from its extremely simple beginnings in plain parenthood to its manifold ramifications and complexities in adult membership of the tribe, clan, and local group. But I am not sure that he ever really carried out this program ethnographically. For that, we must turn to his students. And in this instance, I want briefly to refer to the scholarship of Maya Fortes and Edward Evans Pritchett. Both made a distinction between interpersonal kinship and the politico-dural realm, as Malinowski did when he distinguished between two modes of grouping, the family and the clan. Like Malinowski, they assumed that interpersonal kinship remained broadly universal across all kinds of societies. What they then did was to make a distinction between modern societies, where the politico-dural domain was governed by the state, and more primitive societies where it was organized by means of kinship, specifically the lineage system. Now, anthropologists have thoroughly debunked the assumption that interpersonal kinship is universally the same, and I won't go into those debates here. I mean, this choice of picture isn't coincidental. I tried to find a kind of an image that would serve as some sort of almost universally relevant notion of what a family might be and the kind of diversities of family. And, of course, I couldn't find such an image. So I decided to go entirely particular and show you um, a, little, a little bit of uh, part of my family. I'm up there. <laughs> They're waving. Hi. <laughs> they don't look like that now. <laughs> um, Okay, so, but, I, okay, so you, but you, you'll know about those debates. Now, from early on, legal anthropologists also explored some of the blurrings between interpersonal kinship, the lineage system, and dual relations. And that's, I'm thinking of Max Gluckman's work there. But what I want to do in the rest of this lecture is explore some of the blurrings between interpersonal kinship and the politico part of the politico-dual domain in contemporary life and focus specifically on the intensely political realm of the public sector trade union. Before I do so, I want to briefly introduce a related tangle of terms. Amity, from Maya Fortes, consubstantiality, from Julian Pitt Rivers, and mutuality of being, from Marshall Salins. To take them in turn, in Kinship and the Social Order, which was published in 1969, but was a series of lectures, the Lewis Henry Morgan lectures that were given in 1963. So in, in, in those lectures, Fortes suggested that kin were the group of people among whom notions of prescriptive altruism ought to apply. He described this as a sense of amity, which is based upon an ethic of generosity. There's a quote. It is a notion that kinsfolk quotes are expected to be loving, just, and generous to one another, 
and not to demand strictly equivalent uh, returns of one another. The ethic of generosity could also apply and indeed might even be stronger between other kin-like relations, of which Fortes points to blood brotherhood, neighborliness, and voluntary associations of immigrants in urban centers. In a later commentary on that essay, Julian Pitt Rivers picked out the significance of the word amity as one that unsettles the distinction between kinship and friendship. He argued that both amity and kinship are derived from a sense of consubstantiality, or being of the same substance, and that, quotes, consubstantiality can be established by other ways than by breeding, also using the example of blood brotherhood, among others. Before I discuss the third term, there's two relevant points that I'd like to highlight from this very brief outline. First, we can see the acknowledgement of a kind of blurring of who counts as kin and how you can tell. In Fortes' essay alone, we move from kin as member of a common lineage towards a broader notion of kin as the people among whom an ethic of generosity works and circulates. From what I can tell, this is quite a significant modification of the kind of kinship extension that Malinowski proposed in his interventions in the debates about classificatory kinship that I referred to earlier, since those older discussions did not really cover the extension of kinship terms to those not related genealogically in some way. Second, the idea that kin can be made through processes of often commensality, which is shared eating, or perhaps more precisely, shared feeding, Julian Pitt-Rivers hints at this with his discussion of how consubstantiality comes into being. And the theme of substance and kinship has recently been taken forward most significantly, of course, by Janet Carsten, who's shown how the circulation and sharing of substance, such as food but also blood, makes people into kin, alongside procreative ties. We can, I think, trace a link between the axiom of amity, consubstantiality, and Marshall Salen's recent formulation of kinship as mutuality of being. Salen's argues in a recent uh, couple of essays that kin are, quotes, people who are intrinsic to one another's existence, and that generally considered, kinsmen are persons who belong to one another, who are parts of one another, who are co-present in each other, whose lives are joined and interdependent. For him, this joining of lives need not occur merely through biological relationality, but can be made, this is a quote now, performatively by culturally appropriate action. And he says, a catalogue of commonplace postnatal means of kinship formation would thus include commensality, sharing food, reincarnation, co-residence, shared memories, working together, adoption, friendship, shared suffering, and so on. Salins's description of mutuality of being would also describe rather well the very close relationships between union activists that I saw in my research. Indeed, I hope to show that the political community of the local shop floor delegation is a common project even of self-cultivation that often also combines with actual family relationships or the making of family-like, of family-like relationships, mutual being. In a series of commentaries on Salin's work in Howe, commenters pointed out that we can and often do feel mutuality of being with people whom we do not consider to be kin. Perhaps then the labor union is merely an instance of the development of mutuality of being or amity among non-kin 
but in a kin-like way that can be analysed and studied as if we were studying the formation of kinship. If so, that would imply merely the, the analytical tactic of applying the theoretical approaches of kinship studies to my ethnographic material. Indeed, that might, in fact, be enough for my argument here. That's to say that I'm exploring how the analytical languages provided by the anthropology of kinship help us to understand other kinds of social groupings. However, I think that there may be more at stake, and I hope to illustrate that through some ethnographic data. You're thinking, finally, she gets the ethnographic data, <laughs> which I will present in such a way as to keep in tension the mix between languages of kinship that are mobilised to understand connectedness and agency, real kin connections, including biological ones, and the making of kin through experiences of sociality, including commensality, and care or relatedness. So for the last seven years, I've been conducting field research with the two major unions of state employees in Argentina. ATE, the Asociación de Trabajadores del Estado, or the Association of State Workers, and UPCN, UPCN, Unión del Personal Civil de la Nación, the Union of National Civil Servants. Over the course of nine months in 2009 and shorter follow-up trips in subsequent years, I conducted extensive interviews with unionists from both ATE and UPCN in both their workplace and the union offices. I attended plenaries, assemblies and other meetings, courses for new and experienced delegates run by both unions, and demonstrations, press conferences and other public events. And in 2012, I spent six weeks accompanying a UPCN delegation at their place of work, an important ministry located in the centre of Buenos Aires. My main informants were union leaders. From union delegates at the level of the administrative unit, unit or government department to those with positions in the central offices of the union. When I speak of the delegation, I am then referring to the group of union representatives at the local shop floor level. That's to say, a given ministry or administrative institution or department. So that could be the Ministry of Health, which is the equivalent of what would be here the Department of Health. Ministry for Sustainable Development, Ministry of Education, Defence, Justice, and so on. Or it could be other kinds of administrative institutions, such as the office that runs the National Lottery, or the Vehicle Registration Agency, the equivalent of the DVLA, the Social Security Agency, Taxation Agency, and so on. Now, both unions represent workers employed by the state at varying levels of public uh, administration, not just civil servants, but also researchers, health workers, and even stagehands, actors, and musicians in state-run theatres. Informants from both unions told me that UPCN has a stronger presence amongst civil servants in administrative departments. While ATE's main strength lay in state-owned industries before privatisation, but is now in the health sector, especially amongst nurses, porters, and other auxiliary staff in hospitals. Not the doctors, they've got a separate um, association. In this lecture, I'm going to mo focus mainly on UPCN, in part because for a number of reasons, I ended up developing closer relationships with members of that union. But also because UPCN is self-consciously a Peronist union, one which sees itself as negotiating with the employer, who is, of course, the state in this instance, rather than positioning itself as an antagonist. 
I should say that this position of negotiation over antagonism may gradually moderate itself now after the victory of the non-Peronist Mauricio Macri in the presidential elections of late 2015. But at the time that I've been doing you know, most of my research, they were very pro-government in general. Now, activists in both ATE and UPCN considered themselves to be Peronists, but UPCN delegates were usually much more fervent in how they expressed that identity. Peronism is the political movement founded by Juan Domingo Perón in the 1940s, when he became Minister for Labour in 1943 and then President in 46. In 55, he was deposed by military coup and his supporters entered a period of clandestine resistance when you, you couldn't even say the name of Perón in front of the kind of security forces. Um, and you had, to, you had to kind of hide your, your posters and your postcards uh, behind kind of false uh, panels in the wall and, you know, in, in order to kind of hide them against raids. Uh, so, but, but they entered into this period of resistance and the demand was that he uh, return from exile, which they eventually achieved in 1973. Shortly after, he became president again, but he, did, he died a year later as the country slid into a kind of sectarian violence between left-wing and right-wing forces. His third wife, Isabel, the wife after Evita, uh, who was his vice president at the time, took over the presidency but was deposed in 1976 by one of the most brutal military regimes in the region, which stayed in power for seven years. Perón himself had attracted followers from an extremely wide political spectrum, from leftist Marxist guerrillas to anti-communist death squads. And that capaciousness is one of the characteristics of Peronism today as well, although not with those extremes. Thank goodness, today. Nowadays, though, Peronism is much more than a political orientation, and it's often spoken of as an identity and a way of life. One of the common phrases I heard in Argentina was that a Peronist, se nace, no se hace, is born and not made. Of course, people I knew had come to Peronism via multiple trajectories, and many of them had indeed made themselves and continued to do so. However, the phrase points to the importance of understandings and practices of Peronist militancy that stress its grounding in family. Now, my informants often explained their Peronism to me through metaphors of blood, inheritance, and family experience. I was told that one is Peronista de Corazón, a Peronist of the heart, or that you're born a Peronist, uno nace Peronista, lo llevas en la sangre, you carry it in your blood. Once, in a workshop in the UPCN School for New Delegates, I accidentally said that I'd been impressed by how Peronism was sanguinario, which means bloodthirsty. I was quickly corrected, as I should have said, sanguineo, that is, of the blood. My mistake caused much amusement, but also general agreement that once I'd picked the correct word, I had understood how people felt. In addition to metaphors of blood and birth, other common metaphors referred to early infancy. You might be a Peronist, de cuna, or from the cradle, or very often, uno lo mama, meaning that you absorb it from a very young age. It may just be a word, as an Argentine friend said to me, but it is striking to me, at least, that mamar is also the verb that means to feed at the breast, and baby bottles are called mamaderas. A secretary-general of one of the largest UPCN delegations, who is in his mid-30s, 
combined these various tropes when he said to me, well, one's a Peronist from the cradle, he said, my father was General Secretary of the Argentine Federation of Leather Workers, and, well, you carry that. I always say, I played the drums in a union before I said mama. You carry it in your blood. I think you absorb it from the home. So Peronism can be transmitted or taken on through experiences in the home when very young, and even perhaps through breast milk. It seems to be, at the very least, I think, incorporated into the person from an early stage in their life. This can happen either physically or by association with key aspects of political activism, such as the drums in this particular quote, or by accompanying parents on union business, like demonstrations or meetings or barbecues or graffiti writing. More broadly, many people, both Peronist and not, also felt that they had inherited a general disposition towards political activism from their parents, or in some cases it might actually have been inherited from an uncle or an aunt. That kind of disposition was described to me as variously a sense of vocation for service, a tendency to rage at injustice, or to turn to action rather than simply talk. It might just have been as simple as the impulse to join the union when starting a job, just because that was just what one did. Or a set of values transmitted in daily small acts of charity, or political discussions around the Sunday dinner table. But it was a mix of natural character and experience within the family while growing up. Now, a discursive emphasis on family may not have been quite so acute or sentimental among those unionists who did not consider themselves to be passionate Peronists. But it was not unusual either. And beyond discourse, family also mattered very practically, not least because of how state employment is organised in many institutions. So from time to time, people working for the state told me that their institution was like a family. And when they did so, they often meant it in both a figurative and a literal sense. In one institution that I visited, where over 90% of its workers were affiliated to UPCN, the delegates described themselves and their institutions as a family, mostly, I thought, in order to stress how smooth and well-functioning their group con- uh, they considered their group to be. But the role of family in state employment also goes beyond languages of kinship, as family networks are a broadly used means of recruitment to work for the state in Argentina. This has quite a long history, especially in the state-run industries, as Ilana Sheva has shown for oil workers and Sandra Walansky for telecoms workers. In the past, jobs used to pass from father to son. Father to son. And indeed, Walansky argues that the telecoms workers saw this as a right that had been lost on privatisation and partially recovered afterwards. Returning to my civil servant informants, the nature of family recruitment to jobs does seem to vary across institutions. For example, there was one department that was described to me as like a religious fraternity, como una cofradía. My friend, who is an ex-secretary general of the delegation, said, we pile up all the relatives there. Amontamos todos los familiares ahí. I'm, I'm, obviously, I'm aware that I'm sliding over the religious aspect of that. But the two phrases did follow very clearly, one from the other. Now, the overlap between kin and job recruitment networks was quite a, it was quite a delicate question and ambivalent. On the one hand, it was very openly discussed. 
On the other hand, it was sort of the realm of the, the kind of sideways glances, if I might disapprove of it. Um, and it was also something that people came to discuss a bit more openly once they knew me better. Of course, it's a completely standard way of recruitment to jobs in the state across the world. But many unionists were open about the fact that most people had got their job through some kind of family or political connection. One ATTE delegate said in an interview, in a recorded interview, well, she said, nobody goes to work for the state by presenting their CV at the reception window. People get work for the state because they're someone's family member through the unions or through the functionary, which is the name of the politically appointed top civil servant. An 18-year-old kid doesn't get in on his own merits. He gets in because he's someone's family. Now, few of my interviewees were as frank with me on record as this particular person was. But the role of union networks in getting jobs for family members was not particularly hidden in day-to-day -day interactions, especially as I said when I got to know people better. In informal conversations, my friends discussed where they might find a state job for their adult children, for instance. And when I asked families, uh, activists sorry, about their family histories, many of the stories they told me included how they'd got a place for a family member. The phrase here is hacer entrar, which is to make someone enter, and it's used in an active sense. So, hice entrar mi madre, mi sobrino, mi hijo, etc., means I got a job for my mother, my nephew, my son, etc. One delegate told me how his mother had been widowed when he was very young and had worked as a domestic servant paid by the hour in order to support him through school. Once he was in the union delegation, he got her a job as a cook in a workplace nursery which he said, with great pride, was the most dignified job she had had in her life. The question of kin-based recruitment shaped the union as political entity. First, the practice of getting jobs for relatives actualized the overlapping of kin and friendship networks in the state institutions, and as a consequence in union delegations. Put crudely, those who got their job via a family connection with the union might then often expect to, or be expected, to collaborate with the union delegation as activists themselves. Second, the control of recruitment was often thought to grant considerable political power in terms of what the union could do for its members and how it could negotiate with the employer. Third, it affected sociality. My next point. So the fact that a given ministry is often staffed by people connected to each other as kin or friends helps to maintain an easy sociability, which is in turn generally considered to be an indicator of a well-functioning workplace, for UPCN delegates at least. Indeed, the friendly sociability was one of the most distinctive and appealing aspects of my research when I accompanied the ministry delegation in 2012. I found it to be important both in the day-to-day -day and on special occasions, such as birthday lunches, excursions to places of interest, or cultural events and meetings run by the Union Central Office. This is, just a, this is a celebration of Carnival uh, that I just picked up the photo from their Facebook page. On a day-to-day -day basis, I spent much time sitting in the delegation office with the activists, chatting, smoking, I didn't smoke, <laughs> promise, debating, drinking mate, coffee, soda, eating pizza, biscuits, cakes, sandwiches, playing cards, watching TV, examining people's holiday photos, recent purchases, or medical test results, discussing newspaper stories, gossiping, telling jokes, and so on. 
One substance that often circulated at those times is especially associated with unionists and public sector employees. Maddi is a herbal infusion prepared in a round cup about this size. I meant to bring you one to show you, but I forgot. Um, so it's, it's, it's without a hand, it's about that size anyway. And it's got a sort of a metal straw that goes into it. One person packs the cup with the yerba mate leaves and pours boiling water on it from a thermos flask. They then hand it to another person in the group who sips from the metal straw until they've consumed all the liquid uh, and passes the cup and straw back to the person with the flask who pours more water on and then passes the drink to the next person and so on. It's kind of like a, the spokes of a wheel, the sort of sociality of the spokes of a wheel because, of course, the, that person will also consume mate, you know, not like every time, not in between every, every time, but as part of the general group. People do also drink mate on their own, but the conventions of sharing make it into a very social endeavour, a form of commensality that makes people into kin or at the very least some other kind of close social group. And I'm putting this in the interest of full disclosure because a friend of mine who's an Argentine and an anthropologist uh, wasn't quite... Conf- we kind of disagree over whether it makes people into kin as such. Um, I think that uh, what I think at the very least is that it's one amongst a number of circulated substances that creates the close group of the union delegation and creates it as, I think, a kin group, certainly a kin-like group. So this is the kind of the circulation of the mate gourd bringing people together in this way. It is so associated with a particular attitude of sociability that from the outside it's come to represent a lack of commitment to the job as when people make comments about public servants just drinking mate all day instead of working. And that also features in comedy sketches and the like. But it's also considered to be the national drink, a right that affirms Argentinianness as much as the barbecue does. Ministry delegates usually prepared mate when we came together to, to, to discuss the issues of the day. Discussions might cover topics internal to the ministry and the delegation's work, or current affairs, or debates about interpretations of Argentine history. Especially when I was there, the the Malvinas, or the Falklands. But also, like right back sort of 19th century history as well. The latter might have have been a bit prompted by my presence, and it's true that the topics of conversation became less intellectual as my stay went on. However, it was clearly not uncommon for people to talk about weighty matters, And they evidently enjoyed debating nearly as much as they enjoyed joking and teasing each other. And this is also something that they say happens around the Sunday dinner table. So, substance, such as mate or other foodstuffs, circulated. But also so did jokes, political viewpoints, gossip, understandings of history and what it is to be Argentine, and so on. It's through this kind of circulation, as well as through job recruitment, that the union actualizes existing social and kin networks and, importantly, brings new people into those networks. So if inheritance, sharing actual kin links, and sharing mate and other substances are key ways of creating the union delegation as a kin or kin-like group, care is a fourth way of doing this. Members of the union delegation care for each other and for ordinary affiliates in multiple ways, through the sociability, but also through more structured practices, like the provision uh, and organisation of childcare for the summer months of January and February, 
and very importantly, the Union Health Insurance Plan. Administering both these schemes forms a large chunk of the delegation's activities during the year, and especially in the case of the health insurance, they're one of the main attractions of the Union for ordinary members. So with regard to the health insurance, the delegation may administer, well, may often administer the Union uh, discount scheme on prescription medication. You get more of a, of a um, discount on your prescriptions if you're both a member of Union Personal, which is the, the health scheme, and the, and the union itself. They may also advise affiliates on precisely which kind of health insurance plan to take out. They may arrange to receive test results or organize emergency medical transport. They may organize compassionate leave to care for a sick child, and so on. Delegations also, uh, well, the well-functioning delegations, perhaps, also organize health checkups at the workplace, and educational events about preventive health. More socially, both unions have a couple of recreational areas that members can use. They also provide gifts and discounted goods at particular life cycle moments like marriage and bereavement. Thus, care stretches beyond employment conditions into life itself, into the realm of interpersonal kinship, we might say. We could call all these practices of kinning, to use Senior Howell's term, I want to suggest that they combine to create a sense of mutuality of being within the delegation and to an extent between the delegation and ordinary affiliates, although that relationship is less intense. Is this a non-kin kind of mutuality of being? Well, in this case, it's actually difficult to pull the two apart, not least because of the actual family networks that really do come into play. That, in turn, might not be as problematic as it might initially seem for a political anthropology of kinship, or a kinship anthropology of politics, perhaps, if we return to the ideas of amity from Fortes and Pitt Rivers. For in the case that I'm discussing here, and I suspect many others, there is not a terribly clear distinction between a realm of amity within which the ethic of generosity applies on the one hand, and the politico-dual domain on the other, whether we think of the, the latter as a lineage system, the state, or even just a politics of interest. The personal elements of amity include both kinship and political allegiance understood as passionate conviction that's partially reliant upon family. And they do absolutely influence more conventionally politico-dual spaces, such as collective bargaining. This is partly because, when negotiating politically on behalf of its members, the union relies upon shows of collective power at ritual events street protests and the like, but also, as one would expect, much of a delegation's effectiveness in negotiation lies in the abilities of its leaders to create relationships with bosses, which draw upon friendship networks, sometimes on real kin relations, and on some of the practices of kinning through sociality, which are opened up to non-delegation members, such as ritual events, uh, ritual celebrations of important uh, Peronist uh, dates, to which everyone's invited including the bosses. The delegation builds a sentiment of amity within itself and between it and the employer for its own sake, for the sake of that sentiment of amity, but also in order to achieve political ends, such as a good salary settlement or the protection of jobs. And so the two realms of kinship and politics blend into each other. I've deliberately used Pitt Rivers' phrase, sentiment of amity, because he took Fortes' concept down a route that I find helpful to analyse what's happening amongst my informants. 
Although Pitt Rivers continued to maintain a kind of barrier between kin and non-kin within a broad set of amiable relations, he very importantly brought in the question of self and suggested that a system of thought that takes the individual as its starting point and assumes that he's motivated by self-interest faces a difficulty in confronting the examples of behavior that is not so motivated. And then I skip. Yet the majority of the world's cultures do not share the individualism of the modern West and have no need to explain what appears to them evident. That the self is not the individual self alone, but includes, according to circumstances, those with whom the self is conceived as solidary. In the first place, his kin. Alter then means not all other individuals, but all who are opposed to self, the non-amiable. Pitt Rivers then, I think, proposed an intensely collective self, although that's how I'm choosing to read him. And I too wish to make the suggestion, even if I am applying it to a group of people that he would have probably considered to be very much of the modern West. I would like to bring in here some ideas about self and ethical subjectivation and propose that the kinds of kinning practices and discourses that I've just described can also be understood as forms of ethical subjectivation. By that, I mean specifically technologies of cultivation of collective ethical subjects or selves that are first partly understood to derive from kinship, as in the inheritance of a particular political identity and ethical disposition towards action for others, and second, that operate through kinship modalities or kinship-like modalities, which are, I think, principally, in this case at any rate, commensality, care, and circulation of substance and values, as I've just described. I'm aware that my approach to ethical subjectivation goes somewhat against the grain of much of the recent anthropology of ethics inspired by Foucault. I won't devote a great deal of time to that body of work here, but would point out that much of the more Foucauldian anthropological literature on care of the self tends to have an individual or dialogical perspective. I think Foucault did himself as well. By that I mean that the self under cultivation is on the whole an individual, albeit perhaps in dialogue with the confessor or some other figure, including even potentially the same person later on in life, including also the anthropologist, as in uh, Fobian's work. But the Fugadian notion of subjectivation as cultivation of the self also works well, I think, as a description of some of the processes that take place within the union delegation. Those processes serve to cultivate not just multiple individual selves, but a collective self, the self that stands in contrast to alter, that which is opposed to self, the non-amiable, in Pitt Rivers' words. As the killing processes that I described create a difference between self and alter, so they create the collective self, or actually multiple collective selves. That is, of course, it should be said, when they work properly, which may not always be the case, as delegations do become dysfunctional all the time. Nor do I mean to imply that they create a singular kind of collective self that is necessarily egalitarian or inclusive, morally virtuous, or that always operates smoothly. Often quite the opposite, as, just as within families, they also produce exclusion and hierarchy, stifle debate, or develop into factionalism and favoritism. The amount of effort that goes into these practices indicates the extent of the work that they involve and the task that must be done to construct a collective self. Yet, somehow, collective identities, which I am calling selves here, do come into being. The delegation itself, 
the delegation is part of the union or an overlapping sense of Peronist militancy. By eating together, drinking matter together, engaging in everyday practices of sociality and care, and in the spectacular and occasional moments of ritual events, and on the pages of Facebook, um, the union pulls people together and thereby makes itself into a powerful political actor. My claim here is that these collective selves are cultivated through powerful experiences of togetherness and consubstantiality, as well as through the circulation of substance. This brings me to my conclusion, which is made up of three main points and a summary paragraph. My first point is really just that the making of kin and the collective self in this way is part of how politics is organised and understood in Argentina, and I would venture to suggest elsewhere as well. A kinship anthropology of politics would look different in different parts of the world, but I'd be surprised if it were anywhere absent. These are some uh, Argentinian, this is the, the last regime, uh, sort of a picture of uh, the situation in Argentina. Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, who was the president until 2015, with her husband, who died in 2010, uh, looking at her. He was the president in uh, 2003 to 7. That's actually her Twitter profile picture. It's quite important, you know, this kind of him in the background. And here uh, you've got Nestor's sister, Alicia, and Cristina and, and Nestor's son, Maximo, who are now uh, very important political figures in uh, the province of Santa Cruz, which is their power base. But we needn't see this uh, just at the high levels of politics in uh, Argentina, of course. We might find it uh, in the US and the UK amongst real kin or even kin-like groups. <laughs> rid of that. In Argentina, it simply does not make sense to describe membership of a trade union as just an outcome of an individualized enlightened self-interest, not least because in the past, especially during the dictatorship, union activism could get you killed. Today, it can lead to you being stigmatized by association with corruption and a delegitimized political system. Union activism can also be hard work, taking its toll on intimate relationships and personal health. So why commit? The building of a group sense which generates a sentiment of amity and ethic of generosity helps, I think, to keep people going in the face of stigma. And when success, defined as the fulfillment of their rationally calculated self-interest, seems somewhat distant. Second, the processes of making collective selves contribute, in my view, to the relative strength of unions in the region and in Argentina in particular. That strength is being sorely tested under the new presidential regime, especially in the public sector. Since Mauricio Macri assumed the presidency on 10th of December last year, possibly around 25,000 public sector workers have been fired from their jobs, or their temporary contracts have not been renewed, which for the unions amounts to the same thing. The reasons given have been associated with what I've said about social networks, with an especially contentious problem being that of political networks shaping job recruitment. Specifically, those fired have been accused of being political appointees, even parachuted in at the last minute by the outgoing regime. And there's a name for the political appointee in Argentina. They're known as gnocchis. And um, that's because uh, there's a tradition of eating gnocchis at the end of the month, just once at the end of the month. And the idea is that the gnocchis turn up at the end of the month to collect their salary. 
and then, then they're never seen again. So they're, they're, they're appointees, you know, who, who don't work. But actually, I mean, they were accused of being gnocchis, you know, these people who've been fired, and there's obviously a lot of tension uh, with people kind of saying uh, that they're not, that they're actually, you know, working. Now, a cynic, not I, but a cynic, might suggest that since overall employment in the state can't be seen to rise under a neoliberal regime, the clearing of space is also necessary in order to implant new networks and thus meet the imperatives of a new political collective entering the government. Third, the unions are organising their defence against the firings through modes underpinned by the processes of collectivity and kinship that I've been discussing. Ate is taking to the streets. And while UPCN also takes to the streets from time to time, as you can see in this really big demonstration, this is the May Day demonstrations just a couple of weeks ago, uh, and it was the first time in ages that four out of the five central union federations actually joined together. There's like five of them. That shows you the sort of factionalism. But they actually joined together uh, to put pressure on the government uh, about a a law that's... uh, currently been approved in the Senate but will be vetoed probably tomorrow uh, by the President. Where am I? Okay. So while UPCN also takes to the streets from time to time, as you can see, it's also most likely negotiating behind the scenes in order to defend the jobs of its affiliates. And both tactics require a strong sense of collectivity in order even to take place, let alone be successful. And in the case of behind-the-scenes negotiation, they also require the ability to forge relationships with the bosses, which, as I've said, often works on the basis of common kin identity or identity as Peronist, and so on. Finally, and to return, finally, to Malinowski, the social and personal sentiments I've been describing here are consequential. They are not just colour to add to the real stuff of politics that might be found in a calculation of interest, whether group or individual. To be clear, I am not saying that interest is unimportant or that the unionists do not act as an interest group. They do, of course. But instead, I'm making an analytical claim that describing interest as the primordial explanatory factor only reveals part of the picture at best and at worst might even be misleading. As, for example, when we can only come up with theories of false consciousness effectively when we see people acting or voting against their interest. The key for me is to examine how particular political groups come into being, whether their subsequent action might then be understood through a language of interest or something else. And obviously I think something else, you know, more. Furthermore, I also want to argue that they provide a means by which we can link practices of subjectivation, that is, of creating and cultivating political and ethical selves, together with action on the world to transform the world. And when I say action on the world, I do mean quite impressive and consequential action. Like this, I think this is impressive, this is consequential. So my claim here is that by taking inspiration from Malinowski's discussion of economic action and motivation beyond the realm of calculative self-interest, we come, I think, we can come to a more rounded discussion of political subjectivation and the action that is then made possible. Thank you.